and welcome to the Low Tech Lecture Series. The following is an unedited lecture of a topic tangential to the Low Technology Institute. The ideas expressed are those of the speaker. We hope you find it informative and entertaining. As it is unedited, audio quality varies. Stay tuned after the lecture for information about the Low Technology Institute and its other offerings, or find us at lowtechinstitute.wordpress.com. Thanks and enjoy. This lecture series is a recording of the class Archaeology in the Prehistoric World from the spring semester of 2017, taught by Scott Johnson. Today we're going to finish up talking about tools. Um, we'll finish up talking about stone tools, get into pottery for a little bit, talk about organic tools. Hopefully we'll wrap that up today, and then next time we'll pick up with uh, trade and exchange. Um, any questions from last time? Okay. So we finished up talking about procurement and production. We'll talk a little bit about use. And while you know, the use is the action that's taken in the past, we can only see evidence of it, right? So um, sometimes we have contextual information. For example, um, if you find, remember that Clovis point that was embedded in the, uh, in the ribs of that extinct bison in Clovis, New Mexico, that probably tells us that projectile point was used for hunting bison, right? So sometimes you can tell from the context of the find what it was used for. That one's pretty obvious, but that's fairly rare because usually we just find, if we find, say, projectile points, or stone tools and the like, just in the soil, in the trash, in a trash pit, it's a little less clear what it was used for. Um, so if we're lucky, we have contextual. One of the big things that we like to use is called microware. Microware is not very skimpy clothing. Uh, microware, I don't know what else microware would be. Uh, it is the small traces uh, that get left on the stone tools when they're used for different types of things. For example, uh, there's something called sh sickle sheen. Sickle sheen. So a sickle is a big hooked implement that people used to cut grass before the weed eater. And when you cut grass, grass has a little bit of silica or sand in its cell walls. That's what makes uh, plants rigid, or part of what makes plants rigid is in their cells they have silica. That silica is um, like tiny bits of grit or sand. And so when you continually cut grass with a stone tool, that works like sandpaper and it sh shines it. And it shines it on a microscopic level. You're going to have to look at it under magnification. But you can see a sheen that happens on these stone tools as they are um, used to cut grass. So you can tell if it was in a sickle. Um, wood will have a different um, signature on stone tools uh, when you look at them in the micro, uh, micro level. Uh, same thing with meat. Uh, meat will is a lot softer. It, uh, just each one leaves a different signature of striations or kind of wear on the working edge of that tool. But, um, and then, of course, there's uh, the actual shape, the form, right? So we see arrowheads all the time, and we assume they're used for putting on the fronts of arrows and shooting into animals. Uh, that's usually the case, but just going off of form alone can be a little dangerous because. Maybe it's ceremonial. Uh, maybe it's, uh, 
even though it's an arrowhead, you could still use it to cut something open, or um, you know, there are different uses you can use for. Um, there's something called functional fixedness, um, the idea that you can only use an item for its intended purpose, right? Um, although these are markers, I could certainly throw them at you and then they become projectiles, right? So don't be functionally fixed, even if you find a marker in the, uh, you know, if you were a detective at a murder scene and you found this marker embedded in someone's skull, you wouldn't say, oh, it's just a marker, right? You didn't say, ah, the murder weapon. So uh, don't be functionally fixed because people aren't. All right, uh, discard. So after being used, Things are thrown away. Um, the biggest category of discarded pieces are called debitage. Debitage is French. Um, debitage is just little shattered bits of crap. It's the waste material when you're making stone tools. It's the bits that shatter in that video that I had playing before class, the little bits that are just falling off below the guy's feet. Those are debitage. Just little bits of broken stone tools. These are usually throwaway pieces, not um, big enough to be used again or used for some other stone tool. And it is a type of hazardous waste because some of these things are razor sharp. So if you're making stone tools, you're leaving little tiny razor sharp pieces of stone on the ground. Probably not something you want to do in an area where a kid is going to be running around barefoot. Uh, probably not going to be, you know, uh, you're not going to be dropping razor blades all over your bedroom floor, right? Uh, you're often going to choose a location that is dedicated or outside of the main area so that you're not uh, leaving sharp bits everywhere. Or you clean them up, which is also a possibility. We see uh, once people become sedentary and they still use stone tools, they will sweep their plazas clean or their little fort, uh, courts or whatever. They'll sweep them off so that you don't have hazardous material sitting on the surface. Uh, debitage is often analyzed. We see what types of stone tools you're using. Um, the different types of uh, percussion instruments from a large hammer uh, to a small hammer to a soft hammer to pressure flaking. These all give us different flakes and they're all used to make different shaped and sized tools um, so they can give us some clues as to what they were making and what their trade was like, but debitage is still just debitage. Waste is just a general category of leftovers. There's really not um, anything additional. Um, you can have um, like the stone tools themselves or sometimes when stone tools are broken in manufacture or if a stone tool breaks, let's say you have a spear point and you, you know, and you stab it into some animal and it breaks off right here. That happens fairly often. And so what do you do? Well, you take off bits and try and re-sharpen the front of this because you don't have extra stone tool material with you. So you end up making a new, a new kind of sharp pointy bit that you can stab into animals. Okay, great. It's not the best, but it's something, right? And so you might throw away the tip uh, you might throw this away later, but all of these things, once they get wasted, they can tell us a little bit more about uh, the use and creation. Um, there's intentional discard. So now I'm introducing you to the word agency, which uh, I wasn't allowed to use in my dissertation. Uh, so 
Agency is just the way archaeologists talk about free will. Do you have agency? This has become more of a known word in the general population nowadays, but 10 years ago, um, when I, 10 years ago I started teaching? No, uh, seven, eight years ago when I started teaching, agency wasn't really like a big, big thing. Um, not that it's huge now. But basically the idea that agency is an individual's action in the past. So sometimes it's very difficult to see agency. While we know somebody existed, we know that someone had made this stone tool or somebody killed this animal or whatever, showing their individual actions and choices can be very difficult, especially their choices. How, why did they decide to kill that animal? Why did they decide to shoot it there? Is that where they meant to hit it? Uh, in burials, we get a better idea of agency often because Burials are so wrapped up in uh, cultural meaning, right? The way the body is laid out, what the body is wearing, what accompanies the body. Um, these things are all socially constructed and decided on. They're very often uh, purposeful. It's pretty rare you get a just like a random burial, like that people, you know, someone falls down and that's more of, it's not really a burial, right? It's an accidental interment or something where someone just dies on the side of the road. Um, but burials can show you a bit of agency. So intentional discard would, in burials, for example, uh, I know we're talking about stone tools, but really this can go for any class of artifacts. If you're finding something that was intentionally put in the ground or intentionally gotten rid of um, in a burial, it can tell you a lot about what that person or usually that group uh, thought about the afterlife. Other types of intentional discard are a little less glamorous. Um, there's, you know, throwing something away because the, for example, the stone tool is no longer useful. Um, there were a really famous type of hoe made of Mill Creek Church from southern Illinois. And so basically uh, Mississippian farmers throughout the entire Mississippi Valley would use a hoe that was a stick with a curve like this. And then on this hoe, they would attach a stone, um, a stone hoe blade. And this would be made out of chert. Um, Mill Creek chert is the most famous. And so what would happen if you're down, um, here's Southern Illinois, here's Missouri. Uh, if you're down in Mill Creek, the Mill Creek area or nearby where you can get there very easily, you might attach your hoe to your, your hoe handle and you hoe your little cornfields and over time it kind of wears out and you sharpen it again and it wears out and you sharpen it again and over time it gets to be kind of a nub and no longer useful. If you're real close to this area, um, the cost of transportation is really cheap and you can just throw it away once it gets to a more or less medium used uh, sort of state and throw them away and get a new one. Hooray! But if you live, say up here in Wisconsin, if you were to find a Mill Creek Chert um, stone hoe, it would be worn down to the absolute nub. They would have cut it to there where it's you know hitting the stick, and then they would have like unhafted it and retied it down like this, and then reused it again until there was almost nothing left because it was such a good type of material, but very hard to get because it was far away. So when they choose to throw it away, tells you something about how 
useful or how uh, the, that item is valued, right? If it's thrown away and it still has a lot of use left in it, then it's probably pretty common in that area. If it's curated, the term for using something until it's absolutely completely exhausted is curated. It's a kind of fun use of that word. Then we have um, unintentional discard. When something enters the archaeological record, usually the ground, um, by accident. This happens with, for example, Utsu the Iceman. When he died, that was unintentional discard of his body and all his stuff. Sometimes it's difficult to tell what was intentionally discarded and what was accidentally discarded. Um, sometimes we'll find whole cache like this. Um, all these stone tools um, may represent a cache or a ch or, or catch, however you want to say it. Um, ch, or no, c-a-c-h-e, just like on your computer. Uh, in the Paleo-Indian times, people would often make a whole bunch of stone tools and then bury them in a um, known location. So they wouldn't have to carry them all with them, but they would have easy access to them when they came back. And then something happened to those people. Either they couldn't find that location again, or they died, or who knows what else. Um, and so they left them there, right? So it was intentionally discarded as a cache. Yeah, I guess you'd call it temporary discard. But then the fact that they never dug it back up, well, that's unintentional, right? So unintentional discard. Uh, so sometimes there's, it's a little fuzzy, whether it's intentional or unintentional. Um, but it can tell us, um, all these sorts of discard can tell us more about the people that did it. And then, of course, we have recycling. Uh, this was not invented in the 1980s. Um, sometimes people would take previously discarded items pick them up and reuse them. Uh, sometimes it required some reproduction. That's, I'm just kind of riffing on the recycling sort of thing, really. Uh, I guess you'd call it refurbishment in normal English. Um, but this is certainly something that, that would come apart. Um, like those, uh, for example, those Mill Creek Chert uh, stone uh, hoe Blades might be reused uh, for smaller stone tools once they're otherwise discarded and no longer good as a hoe. Um, sometimes we'll find things um, that were left much longer, uh, a long, long time ago, and we'll reuse them just because it's fun. Okay, um, let's move on to organics. Obviously, organics do not preserve very well because they're made out of things that microorganisms like to eat. As of right now, I don't know of any microorganisms that eat stone tools. Um, so, uh, organics were probably the majority of items people cared for, built, used, etc. in the past, but they are the minority of things that we find. Almost everything we find is stone tools or pottery. Uh, we almost never find organic products, um, even though, again, they're probably the most likely class of items used in the past, so we have to take all the archaeological evidence we have with a grain of salt that we have a, a finder's bias, right? We're only finding what's still available to us. Um, so remember uh, back to when we talked about preservation, uh, what were some climates or conditions under which organic materials would be well preserved? 
I know it's asking you to think back two months. What sorts of conditions? Anybody? Yeah, Eric. Cold and dry. Cold and dry. Yeah, anyone else? If it's constant, yeah. If it's constantly anaerobic, like under underwater, like a shipwreck. Uh huh. Anyone else? How about hot and dry? Really, dry or completely wet enough that it's anaerobic are the are the big drivers. Cold will help. Hot will help. But uh, steadiness is also important, right? So fluctuating temperatures uh, are not great for. Um, the item itself, because there's going to be physical weathering where it breaks down, the actual cells or whatever will pull apart. Um, but then there's the microorganisms as well. Um, sometimes we'll find evidence of organic products because they'll leave behind telltale chemical traces or hollows, like at uh, Pompeii, where the people were covered with ash, the ash hardened, and the people rotted away. It's a good time. And then there's also artistic depictions that might show us. So usually, chenapatoire is only used for stone tools. However, it is a useful way to organize our discussion, so I'm going to extend that to organic products too. Um, but don't use this as a valid or a common archaeological way to analyze something. It's mostly only used in stone tools. Raw material is generally easy. If you have an item, you're going to pretty much know what it's made out of, at least in a general class, maybe not down to the species level, but certainly it's pretty clear that this, for example, is a, um, a leather bag. Just kidding. Obviously, it's birch bark. Um, the source may or may not be easy, especially with organic products, unless it is something that is obviously not local, getting the actual source of a material could be difficult. For example, this birch bark um, container sure could be local, but it could also be made anywhere else that birch bark trees grow that was in contact with the area that we're in now. So not very useful. Um, perhaps you could use chemical analyses to trace down specific uh, chemical signatures of different areas because plants and animals will often mimic the geological trace elements that they have in their environment. So you could trace it down, I guess, but not, it's not usually possible. Um, mm -hmm, on use. Da, 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 da. Uh, manufacture. Um, ba, 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 ba. Sometimes uh, you will have items that are called, I've mentioned them before, manuports. M-A-N-U-P-O-R-T-S, manuports. Um, I imagine this is from manus, like hands. So like hand transported rather than transported by man. I don't think it's sexist. I think it's Latin. Um, and so you might have things like rocks that were used to hold down the edge of a teepee. And other, other, than the, um, other than the shape of the rocks or the piles of rocks, and you find this in the Arctic where rocks will sit on the surface, you, know, you might find rocks in a circle. And these rocks might otherwise be completely unremarkable. But the fact that they're in a circle of the exact diameter uh, of a whole bunch of other rock circles that you find everywhere 
um, which also happens to be the same size as the tents or teepees that that, uh, that group is known to use. So there you go. There you might have uh, some stones that are otherwise unmanufactured or unworked uh, that are used, but those wouldn't be organic now, would they? But they are one example of how you might have a manuport. Um, sometimes there's reverse engineering where you can look at tools, work areas, and the waste products that are left behind, and you can say, ah, well, we don't have the, say, we don't have the actual uh, bark skirt or birch bark container, but we have um, the tools that would be used to strip trees of birch bark and awls that would poke holes in the birch bark and uh, the twine making um, little widget that was used, right? So we might be able to um, reverse engineer what had been built. <laughs> the use, again, uh, you got to be careful with functionality. Well, um, you know, this could be used as a tennis racket or a snowshoe. Uh, it was probably used as a snowshoe, uh, canoes, baskets, right? Generally, the use is straightforward, but again, don't have functional fixedness. Um, people will use whatever they have at hand for whatever purpose they need done at the time. So, um, and often it's difficult to know what the use was because we're not in that society and we don't always know what the use was. Uh, if we go back to that bark skirt, that could just be an everyday skirt. Or that could be uh, the skirt specifically worn um, during menstruation. Um, they're in the southwest, uh, the U.S. southwest. Women would wear a special um, uh, garment uh, when they were menstruating. So, you know, if you don't know that, you might just say, oh, it's a skirt. It covers this, the lower half of your body. Well, there's more to it than that. So we can't always know everything um, about functional objects just be, or from objects just from their general shape. Some things we'll just have to admit we're never going to know. I've mentioned this a couple of times where uh, sometimes we get things in the archaeological record. Again, we're not necessarily native uh, to the culture that we're studying, so we might not know everything that they use. These carved, what I thought were carved bones, these are the uh, armadillo scoots that I mentioned a while ago where uh, my fellow archaeologist and I thought we had found these really neat incised bones that maybe had made some sort of interesting kind of Necklace or bracelet or some sort of decoration. No, no, no. This is just what armadillo uh, scoots, like their scales, look like when the armadillos rotted away. So that was kind of a bummer. And I've also mentioned the, um, the half moon cow shoes that were in the Middle East that uh, archaeologists debated about what they were for quite a long time until one of their workers said, hey, what do you want us to do with these cow shoes, right? So sometimes if you're not from that culture or that area, you might not know what you're dealing with. So you have to have a little bit of uh, humility there. Oop. Organic materials, well, we can look at the same, uh, the same evidence that we had with the stone tools above, right? Uh, manufacturing waste can tell us about uh, what sorts of tools uh, or items have been built. Um, we can also look at intentional versus unintentional discard. So all those things that I said for stone tools go again. Um, if we want to look at specific uh, 
specific types of organic products. Wood, uh, again, not usually preserved. It's extremely rare that we get wood. It's a soft material. Um, and so it's broken up by physical means, freeze-thaw cycles, um, just becoming uh, unstable over time, dry rot, wet rot, um, or being eaten by organics or by, by um, microorganisms. It's really just never there. Um, when it is found, it's uh, usually in waterlogged conditions. It's the almost the only time that we find wood, except in extremely dry conditions, uh, like in uh, Tutankhamun's cave or Tutankhamun's um, grave and things like that. <laughs> wood has probably been used. Uh, if chimpanzees are any example, uh, wood is probably one of the first things that we used. Uh, perhaps think of you know clubs. Probably a pretty simple tool probably preceded stone tools. Um, it takes a lot less to work uh, or find a stick that is going to work uh, for your needs than uh, inventing stone tools. But once you invent stone tools, you can make much more complex wooden ones. Um, wood has been used for transportation. It's light and strong, right? So think of boats or sleds, wagons or travoy. Travoy are, the, um, are sticks that are attached to, well, they were attached to dogs, later they were attached to um, horses, and then the long ends just drag on the ground, uh, and then you can put something on them. Uh, so it's kind of a crude drag behind uh, sled on land, not on snow. Wheels are known from about 3000 BCE in the old world, not in the new world. Um, and <clears throat> they're often found because we find the hollows that they leave behind. We don't find the actual wheels. Um, ships are a super efficient way to get around uh, because you can carry quite a lot of weight and move it with not a lot of power. Um, wood obviously floats. It's flexible. Um, so you can make something like these. Uh, these are called bull boats. They're round. Uh, they're not super... Mm, great in terms of um, really any functional characteristics other than floating you because they spin around. If you've ever been in a, uh, an inner tube, you know how easily you spin around. But they're light and easy and you can turn them upside down and use them as a tent. So um, those were some of the earliest boats, uh, obviously kayaks, uh, canoes, and other um, pre-industrial boats got quite a lot more complicated. Um, Wood is used for construction. I mean, wood is probably at trees, wood, and plants. If we include all of those together, are by far the most commonly used organic products, um, far and away. And wood is probably paramount among them. Um, bark skirts um, in the Pacific Northwest, uh, cedar bark, which seems rather uh, rough, kind of like burlap, can be, uh, but it can also be worked into much finer and much uh, smoother cloth than you would probably imagine. Cotton is obviously king today, uh, but would have been an important crop. Uh, linen in ancient Egypt was a pretty important uh, uh, organic uh, crop. And organic, I, I don't mean like USDA organic. I mean, you know, grown. Um, right, everything possible would have been made out of stone tools. And I should mention here that in, um, if you get 
east of India, we see a huge drop-off in the use of stone tools. The reason being, uh, wherever you start seeing bamboo, you start seeing a decline in the use of, um, of stone tools because bamboo is extremely versatile and you can make uh, extremely sharp spears and other projectiles out of bamboo with no stone tool tip because you can kind of make like a hypodermic type needle. If you, you know, here's a piece of, let's get a working marker. So here's a piece of bamboo, boop, boop, right? So usually it's like that. Uh, if you cut it at an angle, it makes something very similar, well, identical, just a lot larger, uh, to a hypodermic needle. And they're very sharp. And they'll take a huge hole out of the side of an animal, and it'll bleed to death really quickly. And so there is this large drop-off of stone tools once you get uh, east of, of India. Uh, and it's thought it coincides with the use of bamboo uh, for a lot of the same, um, the major stone tool um, uses. Um, fibers are long, thin plant um, or animal uh, filaments that get woven into cord or string. Um, They're woven into baskets or clothing. This is um, it's probably as old as the use of wood. People have been making things out of fiber. Um, they're only preserved in very exceptional circumstances. There's a few pretty early. There's some hand-woven fabric in Peru from like 7,000 years ago, uh, but that's about the oldest we have. But even that, that's, that's just the oldest we have. Woven fabrics have probably been around for I can't even hazard a guess because I'd be afraid probably quite, a, quite far back. Um, once people move out of Africa, you know, um, and you can do cool stuff like this. This bridge has been continually rebuilt in the same location since the time the entire bridge is built in So they don't stretch it, it'll sag too much. The old bridge is used to run the first cable across for what will become the new bridge. And then the old bridge is cut down and it falls into the water. It's washed away by the river. No trace, right? All day long, the community pulls on the new cable to prepare them. These supporting cables are anchored to the 
turn the button on either side and Vittoriano Arisapanna is the architect of Cambridge and he uses traditional methods which have been handed down in his family for centuries. I just switched to Quechua. The structure of the bridge is made with four tables for the floor and two handrails. The bridge weaving begins in the morning with Victoriano weaving from one side and another worker weaving from the other side until they meet in the center of the bridge. When the bridge is finally finished, the communities come together to celebrate. The structure is remarkably safe. It has been built for centuries in this way and can hold dozens of people at any one time. <laughs> There's some hoes as well. So there you go. Uh, and if you think about that uh, bridge, what evidence are we going to see of that? Well, you're going to see the mounts for the bridge on either side, and that's, that's it, right? So those are built into the stone, um, stone abutments on, on either side. So. Bummer for the archaeologists, but really neat. Uh, they used to ride horses across those when the Spanish came, so pretty strong. Pottery. Uh, the earliest pottery was actually uh, made into figurines. The earliest we know of, and again, that we know of, and this changes over time, uh, was 26,000 years ago, KYA, 1,000 years ago, in Dolni Vestunici in the Czech Republic. Or they changed their name now, didn't they? It's Cheka, Checha. Czech Republic changes names. Yeah. Anyway, uh, we don't really have kilns until about 8,000 years ago in the Middle East. And again, these are some of the earliest that we know of. Uh, it's sometimes hard to see kilns because they are not always permanent sorts of structures. They can be um, made a little more ephemerally or so they disappear. Um, sedentism is a prerequisite. And so why would sedentism be a prerequisite, be a prerequisite for pottery making? Why would you have to be still, have a permanent location or a semi-permanent location? Right. 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 Uh, and yeah, letting them dry out properly, uh, and they're heavy, and moving all the stuff around. Um, yeah, it's 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 much easier if you're a sedentary person. Um, therefore, we don't really see a lot of pottery, even though. This Dolni Vestonici, um, early 26,000 years ago, uh, figurines. This is not one of them, but it is an early figurine. Um, does, oh, actually, yeah, it is. Um, those could be carried with you. You could make those in a day, and you, know, you throw them in the fire, and they harden sort of thing. They're not um, really, if they fail, it's not like losing a pot or something like that, right? So um, you don't really see a proliferation of fancy pottery um, until people become sedentary agriculturalists, and even then it takes a little while. 
the earliest pottery is really nothing fancy. It's just basically fired clay. You've probably made more complex uh, pottery in high school art class. Excuse me. The nice thing is it preserves really well. Um, it's clay. Uh, once you turn clay into pottery, it's somewhat like a stone. Um, there's not much organic interaction with microbio uh, microorganisms or anything like that. The only thing that's going to break it down is if it gets crushed. Um, clay is fairly straightforward to gather. Uh, you can get it from pits or rivers uh, because clay is a very fine, excuse me, is a very fine sediment. A river will often sort uh, out different types or water and of any type will sort out different levels or layers. Um, actually, if you go to your backyard um, and you take a handful of water, excuse me, of soil, you put it in a mason jar, you fill it half with water, you shake it, you let it sit overnight. The next day, your mason jar is going to have water and then it will have layers of different soils or different types of yeah, the different types of soil, kind of that we talked about before. Your bottom stuff is going to be the biggest particles that need the most energy to stay suspended in the water, like your sand. And then you're going to go up in increasingly small um, sizes of, of sediment. So sand, silt, clay. Clay will be your top layer. So imagine something that naturally um, puts soil into water and then separates it out like a river. Uh, sometimes in the bends of rivers or in different uh, locations along a river you're going to find deposits of clay where the water slowed down enough to drop the clay out. Um, sometimes you'll find it in what used to be a river channel. Anyway, once clay is found um, and mined out, it can be conditioned um, by adding what we call temper to it. Um, this can be sand or ash, feces, blood, uh, or grog. Grog is ground up old pottery. There's a lot. You can add all kinds of stuff. Um, some will, uh, shells, it really depends what you're making. Uh, each one will add a different um, characteristic uh, or condition to the clay. Um, firing requires a lot of fuel. That means you need to have a lot of trees or a lot of brush or a lot of something to burn to get it to the right temperature. Uh, you can't do this in areas. This is one of the reasons that they didn't make bricks in the Middle East. Instead, they made houses out of mud brick. They didn't have time or they didn't have the fuel to fire that many bricks uh, because of the high temperatures that are required to be sustained to turn the clay into, a, uh, into pottery. So here we have, I was collecting clay uh, out of our excavations. I made settlement ponds and the clay collected in the lowest one. And then I scooped it out and I was uh, basically cleaning, um, conditioning the clay. Uh, we are all familiar with some forms of clay production. Most of us, I assume, have made coil and pinch uh, sorts of pots before, pinch pots or coil pots in even in elementary school. Um, how many have used... Uh, um, the, a wheel to make a pottery wheel, couple, a couple of you. Um, pottery wheels weren't invented um, until. Oh, I don't have the earliest date for pottery wheels. 
dang it, they're only a few thousand years old. Um, the interesting thing is they probably started out because people would make kind of a lazy Susan. Um, they would, and they wouldn't be using the lazy Susan to turn as fast as a pottery wheel, but they would have their pot on it, and then they would turn it and work it, turn it and work it, turn it and work it, so that they could um, they could make it a little more even and a little more you know complicated forms and things like that. Eventually, somebody figured out that the rapid spinning of that wheel could make extremely complex, very thin, and very fine forms. Um, paddle and anvil might be one you're not familiar with. It's kind of like the pinch method, but instead of using your fingers to push the walls of the clay between it, you have like, think of like a wooden spoon you put on the inside and think of like a meat tenderizer on the outside and you go bap, 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 and that pushes it together and squishes, squishes the wall out. So it's kind of like a uh, pinch method on, on, um, on steroids. Okay, surface treatment. These are different ways to make uh, the surface look different or look the way you want it to. Um, sometimes you might want to have a really fine, thin layer of really nice, smooth clay on the outside, whereas the inside you want to use a more economical or easier to get uh, less fine looking clay. And so you might slip it. One way you can do that is by suspending uh, the fine clay in water and then dipping and pulling back out the otherwise finished product that dries on the outside and then when you fire it, um, it has a nice slip on the outside. Uh, incising is using a sharp implement to make designs or patterns. Often these are geographically and spatial, oh, spatially is geographically, and uh, temporally distinct like the designs on a Coke bottle today are different than the designs on a Coke bottle 10 years ago. We're not the first ones to come up with uh, changing vessels for drinking. This has been going on for mm -hmm, 8,000 years or however long uh, we've been making drinking vessels. Uh, glazing is uh, putting something that has silica in it and it actually makes a glass-like uh, surface on the outside. Uh, burnishing, burnishing is actually really cool uh, molecularly. So if here are your clay particles, right, on the edge. If we're looking in cross-section at a piece, and these go all the way down to the other side, right? So this is the surface of a, of a vessel. If you burnish it, you're using a very hard, uh, flat surface to rub. And you rub and rub and rub. And what it does is it kind of depresses and squishes out these surface um, these surface pieces of clay to really flatten it and it kind of smooths out each one of these and, and squishes it out and kind of makes it a lot smoother to the touch. Um, and so a burnished, um, a burnished pot will have a, almost a shiny appearance because it's got that flattened uh, surface. It bounces the uh, it bounces the light back at you rather than absorbs it in all the different shapes of the um, particles on the surface. Drying is an important step. You can't just make it and then toss it into the kiln unless you want it to break because uh, you have to get a lot of the water that's trapped in between the particles to leave slowly so that 
couple of reasons why. When clay is wet, as most of us know, it is a little bit uh, larger in volume because it has all that water in it. Once the water goes out, it all shrinks. If you were to fire it when wet, the outside would dry a lot faster and shrink up, and then the inside would still be fat and engorged with water, and it would cause cracks and failure. Um, and so you have to let it dry out slowly um, and gradually so that it all shrinks together the same. So it's almost completely dry when you put it in the kiln. And then when you put it in the kiln, it just starts to melt these sediments. And everywhere they're touching each other, remember I think I've mentioned it before, uh, go home, buy a bag of chocolate chips, and put them in the microwave. And when they just start melting, take it out and let it cool down. And then once it's cooled down, you should be able to lift out a whole big giant chunk of chocolate that's kind of fused together. You can still see the different chocolate chips, uh, but they're holding together in a solid mass. See, if I was really nice, I would bring in a microwave and chocolate chips and do this for you in class, but I can't bring in a microwave and yeah. Anyway, uh, so that's what pottery is. Pottery is when you get these things melted kind of and stuck together. Ceramics is another level of melting. Ceramics is when you take pottery and heat it higher. And then this melting happens to a greater extent and things become even more fused um, and more homogenous. So all ceramics are a type of pottery, but not all pottery is a type of ceramic. Uh, for example, um, the terracotta, uh, what do you call them, um, pots uh, for plants. They're not ceramic, they are pottery, because they're not fired to this high level. So a little bit of a technical distinction. Um, that's why I, I get annoyed when people say ceramic analysis. Well, most of the stuff that we're dealing with archeologically is not ceramic, but I digress. Um, once it's dried, uh, these are Egyptian uh, kilns. And uh, what kilns do is reduce the amount of fuel you need because you're concentrating and more fully using the heat generated by your fire. So an open pit fire certainly works. And sometimes people, you know, they would uh, put out layers of wood and they'd stack their pots on it. They would stack wood and brush in and around the pots and another layer of wood on top, another layer of pots or whatever, and they'd burn that whole thing. It'd be a huge bonfire and I'm sure it'd be quite the fun uh, thing to do because you fire a lot of pots at once. It's kind of a, an economy of scale. The more pots you fire, the less wood you need per pot. If you were just to fire one pot, you'd need quite a lot of wood for the one pot. Anyway, if you want to be even more efficient, you'll build a kiln, often made of brick or other fireproof material. Um, and there you would make your fire and the hot air exhaust would go up through and uh, heat these items enough that they would become fired. You're gonna lose some breakage in there, um, but for the most part, it's a pretty efficient way to do it. There are two different types of environment, uh, at least chemically. They're called oxidizing environments and reducing environments. So oxidation is what happens when you get salt on your car and it rusts, right? Oxidation is the same thing as rust, it is iron, becoming oxidized or kind of like burning. Um, and so a lot of clays have a heavy iron content. And so when they're fired, 
if there's a lot of free oxygen in the air, that, um, that iron inside the pots will turn red. That's why terracotta pots are red. It's the iron in there that has basically rusted. So that's rust that you're looking at. That's why it's red. Um, in a reducing environment, though, if you are to plug up, get the fire going really well, and then plug it up uh, once the pots are in, it eats up all the oxygen, and there's only heat. And so the same type of pottery, exactly the same, fired in an environment without oxygen, will come out looking white or gray or brown, uh, maybe not so brown, but um, it'll come out looking completely different just because there was no oxygen for that iron to gobble up and oxidize. Fire clouds are um, kind of like soot. Eh, not quite, but imagine if you're cooking over a campfire and you get um, you know, like licks of soot on your pot. It's kind of the same thing, but in a more permanent um, in a more permanent fashion on a piece of pottery that's been fired. Um, vitrification, again, refers to uh, extremely high heat that starts to turn things into closer to glass. This is what happens when you make ceramics. It's that higher temperature that is rarely achieved in the ancient world. Uh, it has to be over 900 degrees Celsius. Meh. And get through. Today we'll pick up uh, with uh, use and talk about form and function uh, next time, and we'll finish up technology pretty quick. Sorry, I didn't get through it. I tried. Thanks for listening to this low-tech lecture. Find out more by visiting our website, lowtechinstitute.wordpress.com. There you'll find the low-tech podcast, our blog, our event calendar, and other things going on around the Institute. You can subscribe to this lecture or our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, and many other podcasting apps. The background music is Rachmaninoff's Piano Concerto No. 2 in C minor and is in the public domain. This podcast is under the Creative Commons Attribution and Share Like License, meaning you're free to use and share it as long as you provide credit.